All right, if you will, grab a seat and take out your Bibles. We'll be joining one another here in a second in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis in chapter three. So grab your Bibles, go with me to page two or three if you're using one of our Bibles, Genesis chapter three. We're walking our way through the entire Bible and giving the big story. And we're calling the series a field guide to the Bible in the same way that a nature enthusiast might take a field guide into the woods to identify trees or type of animal. We want to provide for you a field guide. So when you enter the scripture, you may identify the important bits so that you do not feel uh, incapable of studying the word of God yourself, but you can absolutely dive in and then you can share it with others. And so we are using this check mark as our big outline for the entire history of scripture. You'll find that I think on page 12, we went through that on week one. So let me just kind of remind you of where we've been and where we're going. You have four parts to this big narrative, creation, fall, rescue, and return. And we said last week that in the beginning, God made everything wonderful. In fact, to summarize the story of the Bible is that God created everything. He made everything and he loves you. And so we saw Adam and Eve last week. By the way, the name Adam is Adam in Hebrew, which means mankind. The word Eve means life. So they not only were loved by God, but represent all of humanity that God made you on purpose for a purpose. And everything's good. But the second part of the story is this. We are not alone in this universe. There are other forces in this universe that hate God and hate you and me. And will do whatever they can to steal your joy, if not steal all that is important to God. And so in chapter three, this beautiful picture is broken when the devil slithers into the garden wearing the face of a snake. Now, here's a couple things you need to know. First off, the devil is not a creator. He cannot make anything. All he does is he rides in on the good things God has made and he twists them, he corrupts them. So the devil cannot make marriage. So what does he do? He knows how to break them, doesn't he? The devil doesn't create sexual love, but he knows how to misuse that. He did not create the internet, but he certainly has known how to twist it and corrupt what is on the internet. The devil did not create politics. Okay, actually that one, he may have. But whether he did or didn't, he has somehow worked it out that we will go to the streets, scream at one another as though our gods in Washington are more powerful than our God in heaven. He twists things, doesn't he? And he has many different ways of doing this. One of the ways is he gets in through whispering. Now that word, whisper, did you know that the devil is called the whisperer? It's one of the things that he is called in scripture. In fact, it is a root word. The word whisper comes from a root word in Hebrew for snake. Why? What sound does a snake make? Sort of a whisper. In fact, if you listen to a snake even crawl across the ground, they make sounds like that when they go across leaves or dry or, or, or loose dirt. In other words, whispering brings in violence and viciousness and gossip and pain. And that's one of the ways that he attacks us. And what I need you to understand is that the devil's greatest tools are not death and disease, but only five little lies. He doesn't need many other tools. These have worked very well for, oh, every generation since the beginning of mankind. And if you want to write this down, we're in part three today. If you want to write this down on your sermon notes, main point, every sin always involves believing a lie. 
Sin always involves believing a lie about God, about yourself, about others, about nature itself. It always involves believing a lie. And there are five. Now, I got these five and I first was taught them by my good friend, Patrick Mead. He showed these to me and I was like, man, this is brilliant. So I want to share with you the five lies that the devil uses at the beginning and he continues to use them. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Pay close attention to what they are so that when the whispering begins, no matter what it sounds like, or whose voice it sounds like, you recognize its real source. So, let's begin. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Did you see it? You'll be excused if you didn't see all five lies. I certainly have missed them for most of my life. But the first thing before we look at the lies that I need to say to you and point out to you is that there is nothing in the text that says this was the first time the snake spoke to Eve. Doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that this is the first time. Now, I always, I have a cartoon brain. My wife knows this. Some of you know this. And you'll see, I have a good friend here. He'll say, I know when you're about to say something that you shouldn't because you get this little look in your eye. And then when you do the right thing, you don't say it. So when I think of this story, I always envision it as a cartoon. So you have Adam, God makes him, poof, Adam's made. Adam takes a long nap. He wakes up with a pain in his side. He looks over and goes, whoa, a woman. That's how I envision it. And then you have this next scene, in my mind at least, where Eve is walking through the uh, garden one day when all of a sudden the snake goes, hey, psst, want some fruit? I mean, that's the vision I have in my mind, okay? There's nothing in the text that says that's how it went down. There's nothing that says this was the first conversation and it is possible that this was an ongoing conversation, that there had been some trust built over time, that the devil takes time to do what he's going to do. So please hear me. The devil has time with you. He lays traps that won't spring for 20, 30, or even 40 years. So pay attention. Watch out for the seeds he's planting today. They will grow into bitter fruit in a few years. So he builds a relationship with Eve and introduces five lies to her. And the rest of the Bible is all about will people believe the lie or trust the God of truth. And so here are the five lies. The lie number one, did you see it? Did God really say? Line number one, did God really say? Now, it sounds like a question, but it isn't a question. It's actually two attacks in four words. The first attack kind of plays itself out like this. So did God really say? Now, now here's why it's an attack. Think with me for a moment. Many people you and I know who will never question the instructions on using an iPad app or putting together a piece of Ikea furniture will question what the Bible says about how we ought to live life. And by the way, the Bible has a lot less interpretive issues than the instructions for putting together a piece of Ikea furniture. Can I get an oh yeah? Yeah, have you ever tried to put together anything from Ikea? Or scratch that, have you ever tried to put something together that was originally, maybe the native speaker's language was Chinese or was from China or India? 
Now, and I'm not making light of this. I mean, it's hard to translate from a different language group. Now, if you go from like English to Spanish or something like that, it's a little easier. But when you start getting into some of these others from Asia or Hungary, man, it's hard. And so sometimes you'll read these instructions and it'll say things like, please be happy to use a 2B. And I'm like, well, that's a 2B. And I'm not very happy about this, okay? And so you read this, you go, I don't understand. But here's the reality. What happens when it comes to this lie? Did God really say, we wonder if the Bible is telling us the truth. Do we really know what it says? And the answer is, friends, we know what the Bible says. We know what God says. The question is not, do we know what God says? The question is, will we do what God says? Did God really say Are you really sure that the Bible came from God? Did God really say to love them? Did God really say to keep my word? Did God really say that I should be that generous? Now, there's another attack that comes from this one. The second one is that it's not did God say, but did God say to you, to you? You know, it's one thing to say, I read it in the Bible. It's another thing to say, God spoke to me. It's amazing to me, the last couple election cycles, there have been these attacks on candidates for saying that they believe that they can speak to God and that God speaks back to them. And people look at them like you're a functional idiot. It's like, really? Yes, really, I believe that I can speak to God and he really speaks to me. And this is the world, mind you, that doesn't mind if you believe in crystals that they can heal. Or if you believe that St. John's Ward can cure your depression, this is the same world that says it doesn't matter if you believe in horoscopes or if you want to take marriage advice from someone who's been divorced four different times. In fact, do you guys remember, how many of you are old enough to remember the psychic hotlines that were always advertised? Any of you remember those? Like, they're all gone now. They've all gone out of business, which my thought is if you really could do what you could do, shouldn't you have been able to foretell that was going to happen to you? It's like, really? And yet this world will say, you are insane for believing that God can speak to you. And so the first lie is, did God really say? The second lie is twisting God's word, twisting God's word. It's in that same verse, verse one, where he says, did God really say you must not eat from, notice these two words, any tree? Did God say they must not eat from any tree church? No. God gave them every tree to enjoy but one. And the devil twists the words of God and says, oh, did he say that you couldn't do it from any tree? Do you see how sometimes God says, don't do this. I give you all these good things. Just don't do this. And we turn it around and say, God doesn't love me. He doesn't want me to have good things. We twist the scripture. So we're told if you hold to any straight or any standard of morality, then you must be a hateful bigot. Really? Friends, I can love someone and not love everything they do. How many of you, don't raise your hand if you don't want to, but how many of you have kids? You love your kids? Yeah. Do you love everything your kids do? No. You can love someone without approving of everything. You can love someone without agreeing or voting the same way. You can love someone and not like all the same foods they like. It's true. I'll have people say to me, You're going to love this. I try it and no, just, just no. I don't like it. Not one bit. You can love people and not approve of everything. And so people say, well, if you don't approve of every sexual practice, you must hate sex. And I've said this before. And by the way, some of you are getting nervous because I use that word in church. Friends, our kids are hearing about this out there. We must talk about it in here. So 
With that said, some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, I get in these conversations periodically and one not too long ago, had a young lady, we were talking about this. She goes, well, your God just hates sex. I was like, no, he doesn't. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. And we went back and forth. I mean, I get paid by the hour, so I had time. It was fine. Let's just keep going. Well, yes, he does love this. In fact, I work for the guy who created sex. She hadn't thought of that. And then I said, he even has a book about it in the Bible. Now, which, by the way, now all of our teens' ears are perked up and they are listening closely. The book is called Song of Solomon. Go ahead, read it. Enjoy the read. It's a little strange. And by the way, fellas, just listen. Okay. Um, The compliments in the Song of Solomon, don't use the compliments in there. The compliments section is way past their sell-by date, okay? If you look over at your babe and you say something like, your stomach is like a heap of wheat... I'm not responsible for what happens next, okay? Do not, though, do not assume or twist the word of God when God does not prohibit everything, say that he does. But see, that's the second lie, isn't it? If God prohibits one thing, he must prohibit everything. And by the way, we Christians do this as well, not just the world. We will twist the truth. We will twist scripture, don't we? No, we don't mean to, but we do it. I mean, Eve did it, didn't she? She said something she spoke over for God. She said, well, no, we can eat from the trees, but God did say we cannot eat from that tree and we cannot touch it. Did God actually say you couldn't touch it? It's not in the text. She overspoke for God and we do this all the time. As parents, we've got to be careful about that. And as a father, it is so easy to say, thus saith the Lord, when really it's just thus saith dad. But here's the danger with that. If you treat your opinion at the same level as God's truth and your kids learn that your opinion is just that, an opinion, then they will learn that God's truth may just be an opinion as well. Do you see where we're going there? So let me give you a couple examples growing up. Um, And I love my family. I love my upbringing. Some of you, I had people from first service say, oh man, I had the same things. Here's one. So we're told things like, you can't drink alcohol. Now, let let me say this real fast, real fast. There are some people for whom alcohol is a really bad choice. Their personality goes out the window. Not a good idea. Others overconsume, shouldn't do it, okay? But did God ever say you may not drink alcohol, church? Yeah, I mean, if he did, we're going to have a real hard time explaining that miracle of turning water into wine. Because I've read the Greek and it does not say, and Jesus turned the water into Welch's grape juice. It ain't there. Now it has said... Don't get drunk. But he does not say don't drink. Don't overspeak for God. Or what about this one? I was taught growing up that you should not dance, that dancing was a sin. Yeah, can't do that. In fact, I was told when you get married, you might should not even have sex. Why? Because that sex might lead to dancing. And that, okay, some of you will get that. And so I was told, don't do this. It's just a bad thing. If you do this, oh no, babies will pop out. You just, I mean, it's weird. And so even choreography would say, uh, not so sure. So if a strong breeze began to sway or push me, my parents, stop that. I'm sorry. Okay. Not quite. Close. Did God ever say don't dance? We're going to have a hard time because in the scriptures, we will see people who love the Lord deeply dancing before the Lord as an expression of their love to him. Let us never over speak for God. Because if we do, our children will grow to resent what we say or assume that where we're incorrect in our opinions, God is incorrect in his. Now, here's a third one. The third one is that there are no consequences. (laughs) 
How many of us know that this world could do with a little bit of clarity on consequences? Come on now, how many of us know that it's those consequences that brought us to greater maturity in life? And when we remove consequences as parents or as other individuals, we lose the ability to help our children understand how life really works. But in Genesis 3, 4, it says, the Satan, the devil says, you will not certainly die. In other words, there are no consequences. Now, let me talk to the teens for a bit here. Now, first off, teens, you're beautiful. You're awesome in every way, except there's one thing you're going to need to work on. You will have to learn how to tell yourself no. Every person who succeeds in life learns to say no to themselves. And if you ask any of the parents in this room here what their greatest regret is, it will almost always go back to a moment when they did not say no when they should have. Now, this isn't just for you. We need to continue telling ourselves no at appropriate times because there are consequences. And by the way, we know this. There's a consequence to everything in life, even good things, right? I love Oreos. I've told you this. But is there a consequence if all I ever eat is Oreos? Yeah, absolutely. Parents, is there a consequence if you work really, 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 really hard and never spend time with your children? Consequence. But is there also a consequence if you spend all your time with your family and you actually never go to work? There's a consequence. So if you ever hear the whisper, there are no consequences, you know that's a lie. Pay attention to it. The fourth one. is that God is keeping good things from you. God is keeping good things from you. Oh, if he just cared about you, he'd let you do that thing. He, if he loved you, he would not tell you no. So many people think God is keeping them from having a good time and they get angry at God because he does not stamp his approval on all of their desires, behaviors, or words. So they look to new ways to read the Bible. Well, let's just reinterpret that a little bit differently. Well, if you go back to this translation of this verse in this way, then if you take this part of this verse and translate it and put it with this one, then you come up with something completely different than what God has actually said. Or we look for new so-called experts to tell us what we want to hear because we believe that God must be holding out on us. But friends, God gave his son to disarm the lie that God was withholding anything good from us. Do you understand that? If I were to ask you to put on a sheet of paper and rank all of the things that are of greatest value to you, near the top, if not the very top, would be the members of your very own family. Therefore, if you were to give a member of your family to another, no one in their right mind could claim that you are just withholding good things. God did not withhold his own son which means that although this world is broken and there are broken things in it, you will never have a perfect world here. By the way, perfect worlds don't exist outside of heaven. But we may never be able to look at Jesus and say, oh, God just doesn't love me. No, he loved you this much. He's not withholding anything from you. And then the fifth and final one is that you can be your own God. Now, we did this in first service, and I saw a lot of happy faces. It seemed to be very cathartic, so let's do it again here. I need you to help me out. Are you ready? <clears throat> Look to the person to your right or to your left. Go ahead. Pick a person. And here's what I want you to say. Ready? Four words. You are not God. Ready? Say it loud and proud. You are not God. Go ahead. <laughs> Feels good, doesn't it? Some of you have been waiting to say that since the Nixon administration, haven't you? 
All right, all right. Hey, the party's not over yet. Now turn to the other person to your second choice. Go ahead and tell that person you are not God. All right, all right, now come back. Some of you are having way too much fun. I didn't say explain why you're not God, okay? We are not God. You're not God. And guess what, friends? The person I need to hear that more than anyone else is the man who looks at me in the mirror every morning because I'm the one who often forgets that I'm not God. Do you know why that's really, really good news? It means I'm not responsible for keeping the world spinning. I'm not responsible if someone I love makes a bad choice. I'm not responsible for making sure politics and the government and everyone behaves. I'm not res- I can't even keep me right. I'm not responsible for all the other things. But if I'm not God, then that means there's a possibility there is one who is bigger, stronger, more capable of taking care of everything out there. I'm not God. You're not God. A friend of mine who guest lectures at universities across the country was in a conversation talking about ethics and about God. And this one student said, well, you know what? I think we're all God. And he goes, really? And the student goes, um, yes. And he said, well, if you're God, let me ask you this. If you're God, why are you sitting here in this room listening to an old man preach at you instead of going to Disney World or something? If you're God, you're a lousy God because you have no power. Every one of us will worship something. By the way, Whatever you worship is your functional God. So we'll worship money. We'll worship power, sex, relationships. We'll worship things like esteem or credit or being seen as important by others. We worship all sorts of things. We worship our bodies. I mean, all sorts of things in a million other ways. But the one reality is there's only one God who's big enough to cover all the things that we need. He's the only one strong enough to take care of us. So when the devil says you will be like God, he's saying you can be the ultimate power in your life. And that just isn't true. The truth is that there is one God and we are not him. The whole dynamic and drama of scripture is simply this. Will the person involved believe God or one of the five lies? In fact, there really are just but two questions as we come to the end here. Will the people of scripture believe God or any of these lies? So will Noah believe God and build the ark or believe everyone else and drown? Will Abram, leave his home and go to a country God will show him, or will he say home? Will Joshua follow God's battle plan to march around Jericho or trust in his armies and lose? Will Esther believe that God placed her in her royal position to save the Hebrews or stay quiet and try to save herself? Will Jonah trust God and go to Nineveh or will he be swallowed by a fish? By the way, we know how that one worked out. And here's the question. What about you? What about me? What will we do? Will you believe God? Will you trust him or will you believe the lies? The Bible leads to the doorstep of our hearts. It reveals to us the truth about ourselves. And the truth is these lies are effective because we all fall for them. Will we trust God or will we believe the lies? And because like Adam and because like Eve, we believe the lies and we break our lives and break the world around us. The next question, and I think even more important, is this simple question. What will God do? What will God do when we believe one of the lies? What will God say? How will he respond? Will he show up like an angry drunk dad busting into your bedroom with a belt pulled out? Or will he show up as a tender father coaxing us out of hiding? And here's the beautiful thing. Friend, listen to me. If you've been asleep, wake up, please, just for one second here. 
Some of you, okay, you're with me, okay, good. Some of us are in the middle of believing a lie, aren't we? And we're experiencing the consequences. By the way, the consequence of believing something that's untrue is it leads to a breakdown of relationships, a breakdown of understanding. It leads to death. You understand death simply means the separation of things. So it's the body from the soul. It's breath from life. It's these things that are separated. And when we believe a lie, things fall apart. And every one of us has believed a lie at one time or another in our life. And some of us today, you're going, man, I'm living in it. And the question I've got to ask is, so what's God going to do about it? Because if we're only talking about the lies and what to avoid, then there is no hope. But here's the hope. Are you ready for the hope, church? One word. One word in Hebrew gives us the hope that I need and you need as well. Are you ready for that one word, church? Everyone say yes. Here it is. That word is? You're welcome. May God bless you and show his feet. No. What is this? This is an incredible word. It is one word in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word, ayaka, and I know I'm butchering it. So none of you Hebrew majors come tell me that. Ayaka, what is that? It's one word in Hebrew, but it translates into three words in Genesis 3, 9. When Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes for what they have done, they believe the lie and the consequences crashing in on them. God does not break down the door ready to whip his kids. Instead, ayaka, what is that? He says, where are you? One word. And within that one little word is compressed the deepest theology of the scriptures. Where are you? In this one little word, this one little phrase, where are you? He is saying three things. Write these down in your notebook. Number one, that God seeks lost sinners and he seeks you. Friend, if you've believed a lie, understand when the voice of God comes, it's not to beat you, it's to rescue you. He says, where are you? Oh, sweet child, where are you? He comes to seek you. When Jesus comes, God himself poured into flesh. He says, I came to seek and to save the lost. So if you've believed a lie as I have and everyone else in this room and every person who's ever drawn breath, the good news is that God says, where are you? For he comes to seek you. And he doesn't simply come to seek you. He invites you to confess. See, God knows where they are. He doesn't need them to say, no, he knows where they are. Why does he say, where are you? Because we need to identify that we are not where we need to be to say, I'm not with you. I'm not where I need to be. Help. That's what confession does. He seeks you. He invites you and me to confess to him. And finally, this one little word is a promise that God will redeem us through Jesus because he comes to us. He finds us in our misery and in our poverty of state. And he says, I will save you. And he does that through the cross of Jesus. And in verse 15 of chapter three, we get the first promise that Jesus will come and fix all that is broken. When God says to the serpent, He, Jesus, will crush your head, snake. You'll strike his heel. Yes, you'll kill him on the cross, but on the third day, he will exit that tomb and he will crush your head once and for all. If you have believed the lie, now believe the truth that there's a God who's looking for you to bring you home. And he does it through the work of Jesus Christ. So will we believe that truth today? Let's bow. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I invite you to just do a little business with God. Would you take a moment and share with him where you are?
Which of those five lies are you most tempted to believe today? Are you tempted to believe that maybe God hasn't really spoken or, you, or the twisting of the word? Maybe you have this gnawing feeling that God is holding out on you or that you can be your own God. Would you tell the Lord that because he already knows? He's asking you, where are you? And for some of us today, like Mike, in a few moments, you need to say yes to Jesus in baptism. I'll be in the lobby here. You come find me. and We'll walk through that process. What does it look like to say yes to the Lord? And for others, we just simply need to say, Father, here's where I'm at. Will you please take me back home? And the promise of the gospel is if you are in Christ, you are in the family forever, and he comes to save you. Father, every heart is open to you now. We ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you come to us as you did in the garden. And you say, where are you? May you speak to each of us. And then just as you did in the garden, will you speak the promise that there is one who brings hope and life even in the midst of death and lies. His name is Jesus. Our hands are in his life. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.